Welcome to the Neutral Ground Podcast Season 2 Year in Review. Now, the very first thing that I want to do is thank all of you for listening and subscribing both on the YouTube channel and on the various podcast platforms. Whether I'm receiving an encouraging email from you through the website, theneutralgroundpodcast.com, or reading your comments on the YouTube videos, what I love about this community is that we're actually doing what we set out to accomplish. We're building a culture of people who value civil discourse through thoughtful questions and sincere answers. I could not do any of this without all of you, so thank you. Now, if this is your first time with us, go ahead and hit the subscribe slash follow button and join our growing community of people who are looking for meaningful conversations without the extreme noise. I'll try to keep this part somewhat brief because not everyone is going to be interested in our numbers and goals, but let me begin by saying this has been a great year for growing the podcast. Our YouTube channel is starting to find a good target audience, and we're seeing a steady increase in both views and subscribers. We're also starting to build some momentum on the audio platform side as well. In my Anchor Podcast Year in Review breakdown, it says that the Neutral Ground Podcast finished in the top 30% most followed podcasts on Spotify. And our 32 video episodes on Spotify were in the top 15% most viewed. Again, that's all because of you out there. So thank you. Now here are my goals for the coming year. First and foremost, I want to get better at what I'm doing. To have clearer questions that set my guests up for success. To be more in the moment and not worry so much about time and the next question. These are definitely achievable goals. In terms of numbers and growth, I would love to be somewhere between five and 700 subscribers on YouTube and break into the top 25 podcasts on Spotify by the end of 2023. I think these are both reachable goals, but also difficult enough that it will keep me accountable to all of you and my guests. Okay, enough of the administrative updates. Let's get into the content. I enjoy and value every guest who comes on my show, so I'm not choosing specific people to highlight here. Rather, I want to highlight two themes over the next two weeks that I think really connected with people. The first one, and the theme for this week, is literature and conversation. Then next week, we'll talk about the troubling identity crisis in our culture. I'll be back with new conversations starting on January 10th. For each of these weeks, these montages, there will be links to the full episodes in the notes section for those of you who are interested. For now, I hope you enjoy this week's theme of literature and conversation. The so the the pop cultural versions of the vampire and all the all these different things, right? The Twilights and and Underworld and all, all that stuff. They if they do, and I think this actually goes back to your main thesis as well. If they do bring in the theology, it very much seems kind of like a trope, or it seems like they're throwing it in for a kind of aesthetic purpose. But in Bram Stoker's world, the theology plays a very important role in Dracula. Can you talk a little bit about that connection there of the theology? Uh, well, maybe the most maybe the most immediate example is right in the beginning of the novel. Harker's writing in his diary, 
um, just before he arrives at the castle and he's staying at an inn and an old woman offers him a, a rosary and a crucifix and he says that he's a god-fearing Englishman right <laughs> which is uh, which is a, this is a very old thing in in the English Gothic novel there's always a contrast between Europe which is radical both political and religiously Catholic and then kind of very sober sensible um you know Protestant England but no he takes it anyway he, he he's he's wearing a crucifix and it's so it's this it's this very strange syncretism almost this combination of you know a god-fearing Protestant Englishman who's taking on uh, a Catholic or orthodox bit of religious wear and this gets ramped up through the movie as as you know they return the crew they call themselves the crew of light uh, and they return to to Eastern Europe with uh, American Winchester rifles and Catholic communion wafers. Um, so it's it's this it's this kind of melding, this fusion of very very um, very very old Catholic and, and Orthodox religion uh, with very contemporary American and uh, British empires technology. So it's 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 pr- like there's there's another great moment where Mina realizes that she has the mark on. She's burned by the communion wafer uh, after being bitten by Dracula, uh, and it's 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 um, it's almost like a you know my God my God why have you forsaken me? She says you know God cannot bear to look upon me. Um, so Dracula is not simply an economic threat, not simply a kind of threat to British imperialism, but is actually this kind of destabilizing signifier, uh, which has to be combated by drawing all of these. Uh, both practical, uh, technological, and religious and theological resources together, and and you have that mark of Cain as well, you know, playing in the background here too. That you're forever once you're touched by this, you're forever touched by it. There's this idea that there is there is no going back uh, at that moment, and how horrifying that that would actually be. It th- there may be something to this, maybe not. But it also makes me think of when you strip away that that theology underpinning, do you end up creating two different kind of uh, one seems without the theology, it seems like you're creating monster, you're creating this monster. But with the theology, it seems like you are creating something uh, much more terrifying because the monster, you, you fear not who can he who can destroy the body, fear he who can destroy both body and spirit, right? So you've got the monster can can kill your body, destroy you. But the, with the theology, you have something that can destroy spirit and body. And in many ways, that makes it, I think, a much more horrific figure. Yeah, what is it that uh, Van Helsing says? I want you to believe, he says. You know, uh, he's talking to he's talking to a doctor. Um, and he says, "No, I don't. This isn't. This isn't a matter of kind of very limited rationalist modes of inquiry. I want you to. I want you to believe. I want you to understand this as 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 a matter of faith, and not just as a matter of science. And I think, I think really the 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 point that I, I try and bring up in that last chapter, which is on Frankenstein, um, uh, Dorian Gray, and Jekyll and Hyde." is that the fantasy eclogothic is kind of wrestling with the uneradicable nature of the the kind of numinous right this is a 
we're in an, in a discursive age of degeneration, post-Darwinian religious controversy, uh, the first genuinely serious uh, attempts to sort of delegitimize, or, or not not delegitimize. I think religion increasingly becomes a singular discourse among many other discourses, right? So, but at the same time there are elements to these gothic novels which are absolutely concerned with you know evolution crime these 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 other emergent contemporary discourses but within it a lot of the the fear is grounded on very very deep seated uh and you know theological anxieties that can't be explained solely within strictly materialist terms And then Milton Satan says, but say I could repent. He gives us this hypothetical here. And this is where I say that he traps himself in, in a box of rhetoric here. But say I could repent and could obtain by act of grace my former state. How soon would high thoughts, uh, how soon would height, meaning back where I am at that top again. Remember, he blames God for making him as great as he is, right, as close to the top as he as he once was in the hierarchy. How soon would height recall high thoughts? How soon unsay what feigned, meaning like false, submission, swore? Ease would recant vows made in pain. Oh, what a beautiful line. Ease, right? The moment, the comfortability of being at that place again, that position, would recant would immediately get rid of the vows that he's making now in his pain. He, <laughs> this is this is that that argument that people make, and I don't know enough about it, so I'm just going to state the argument, and I don't know how how it works. But there's, of course, my understanding is pretty good evidence against the use of torture because they're making these kind of vows in pain, right? Yes, this happened, and that happened, and this happened. And then, of course, when that torture ends, and they're they're back in their normal state, then those vows that they made in torture get recanted. And so you also have this, this, this is kind of how the dark romantics, you know, people like Byron, Shelley's, and how they establish God, Milton's God here, as a kind of tyrannical ruler. And it's very easy for people to fall for that, to see, I think, God as a tyrannical ruler. In fact, I think Milton sets it up that way on purpose. I used to think when I was younger that it was just a misreading, that the romantics were kind of misreading. And uh, when others read this poem and they see Milton Satan as just a victim and God as just a tyrannical ruler, I used to think, oh, that's just a, a misreading. But I'm not so sure anymore. I think Milton does that on purpose. He wants to catch people in a state of mind thinking that this is nothing but uh, the suffering of a victim and the works of a tyrannical ruler. When in reality, the underpinning of this at all times, remember, Milton Satan is very much aware that there is a space for repentance. He admits this. He admits that he doesn't really owe God, anything other than, you know, being grateful or, or love really is what it comes down to. You could even make the argument that his 
his understanding of, of his relationship to God is misguided. It's not even necessarily gratefulness. It's, it's love and adoration, which is supposed to be, you know, which, again, Milton Satan says, is owed to God. Ease would recant vows made in pain as violent and void. For never can true reconcilement grow where wounds of deadly hate have pierced so deep. For Milton Satan, his wounds that he's feeling now have penetrated so much that he could never, never forgive God and never really recover from them. And of course, that is the is maybe maybe the essence of why he can never truly come back into the graces of, of heaven anyway, is because he keeps flip-flopping back and forth between this idea of what God has done to him and what he has done to himself. And how many times do we often look externally and blame someone else for our pain, right, that's caused by ourselves? And I'm not extending that past, anything past that one idea. In other words, I'm just, I'm not talking about all pain. I'm just talking about the idea that we externalize an enemy for pain that was brought upon ourselves. It's a very human thing to do, and it's a very difficult place to get out of emotionally. Very difficult to admit that. Which would but lead me, he says, to a worse relapse and heavier fall. And then here's perhaps my favorite line or favorite section of the whole thing. So should I purchase dear, short intermission, bought with double smart, this knows my punisher. Usually when I teach this section here with students, I'll stop right there and I'll ask them, what does that mean? So I'll ask you here as well, what does that mean, that line? Let me say it again and then think for a second. What is, what is Milton Satan actually saying here? He says, So should I purchase dear short intermission bought with double smart? This knows my punisher. What is that concept of, of bought with double smart? What does he mean there? Well, let's think about this, right? Should I purchase intermission? Intermission we know is, is a kind of a break, right? We have intermission still in plays and things like that. Should I buy a break from my suffering? Should I buy it? And how is he going to buy this? What kind of currency is he, is he going to be using to get a break from his suffering from God? Double smart. A lie. So should I go to God and lie about how I'm feeling, to try to gain some kind of respite, some kind of some kind of just break from this state of mind. This knows my punisher. What does God know? God knows that it's a lie. No, you ended up coming right to to it here, and, and I'll just connect back to your to your discussion of, of Gollum here. Is there a kind of genuine worry within us, you think, 
part of the allurement, as you mentioned, of the abject is that we want to push it away, and yet I think we can easily recognize it within ourselves as well. And so do you believe there is a, a kind of, whether it's primordial or of the modern day even, is there, you think, a genuine worry within us that we are always in some ways deteriorating into the abject, into a kind of golem figure? Right. Thank you. Your question was about my talking in the book about how we need to be honest and playful uh, with the abject. Um, I don't know if it's, um, if I would necessarily say, certainly at times for some of us, it, it may be a feeling like we might become something horrible like that. But even if it's not sort of that complete, we all have parts of ourselves that we don't like, um, that, uh, you know, that we're embarrassed by, that we're ashamed of, things we've done um, that we wish we hadn't done. Um, and uh, if we just sort of push those things away and ignore them, they tend to keep on eating at us. Um, if we can look at them and recognize them for what they are um, and even, you know, find humor in them, uh, then they, in fact, can make us sort of more complete people than we would, would be otherwise. Something I didn't know until your book that I found actually quite entertaining and enlightening at the same time is I didn't, I didn't know the story that we know how Tolkien came about his first line of The Hobbit. And I actually want to just relay the second one here for the context for the audience. Tolkien says, I had an enormous pile of exam papers there. Marking school examinations in the summertime is a very laborious and unfortunately it's also boring. And I remember picking up a paper and actually finding there was one page of this particular paper that was left blank. Glorious. Nothing to read. So I scribbled on it. I can't think why. In a hole in the ground, there lived a hobbit. You have a great theory here as to why you think this was the first line that came to him, having to do with a sudden feeling of grown-upishness. Can you relay to us a little bit what, it, what that means and why you think it hit Tolkien so hard? Yeah, the grown-upishness. Um, Tolkien, when he was younger than that, um, uh, among his paintings were one called Grown Upish, that he named Grown Upishness, and another um, that he named Under Tenishness. Under Tenishness is a very colorful and playful uh, painting where, when you look at it, um, what you, you see a butterfly, um, a beautiful butterfly, but also um, it's a pathway um, into the distance. So the, um, the butterfly's body. Um, actually, when seen differently, is is a pathway and and so on. So um, it has you know this uh, enjoyable double meaning and all this color. The one called grown upishness is a weird um, black and white drawing of um, a, a man who um, uh, and and written there are the words um, sightless, blind, and something else which I'm forgetting right now. Um, but it seems pretty clearly, I mean, it's a huge contrast with under tenishness and in combination, you know, this may have meant many things to Tolkien, but it's hard not to see one of the meanings being that um, uh, 
childhood is a time of um, play, wonder, color, and being grown up um, is, a, is a time of being dull, um, constricted, um, and bored. Clearly, that wasn't the only way Tolkien thought about that, but it was, I think, one of the ways that he could think about that. And you, as a college professor, probably know the feeling of sitting before a huge stack of exam papers. Um, so it was a moment where, for Tolkien, I think he saw the what he was in or almost in was that grown-upishness experience, the one in the picture as he was doing the exam papers. And so he went on an adventure um, uh, and uh, wrote the first line of The Hobbit. He didn't know why, but it was, it was his, say, under 10-ish side coming out and saying, um, no, I'm going to have fun anyway. That section immediately made me think of the, the first lines that poet John Milton thought of when he was writing Paradise Lost was not anything having to do with God or Jesus. The first lines were actually of Satan's soliloquy. O son, to tell thee how I hate thy beams that bring to my remembrance from what state I fell. And you think, wow, that says something about the poet, about the creator. At the time, their mindset, I mean, Milton, of course, was always worried about this idea of sin and, and not being enough for, for God. And so to, to see this first line for Tolkien as well, his entry point into The Hobbit, it, it makes a lot of sense what you say that this was his kind of way of entering into that, that adventure side again, that journey, that uninhibited creativeness that comes with being a child. So it, it was quite, quite fascinating for me. I'd like to, to shift our focus here a little bit to female depictions in Tolkien's works, which you discuss in chapters five and six. First, I enjoyed tremendously your reading of Tolkien's sensitivity to Marian aesthetics, as in the Virgin Mary. Through, uh, we see this through Galadriel and, and music or song, and it actually inspired me to look up if there were any relationships between Tolkien and the Hail Mary prayer. And sure enough, I found that Tolkien apparently translated the Hail Mary into High Elvish, which I thought was absolutely fascinating and kind of helped also even to cement your ideas in, in that fifth chapter as well. Now, here's where I want to I bring you in. You have two dominant female characters in The Lord of the Rings. You have Galadriel and you have Shelob. And you point out that they represent opposite meanings or images of womanhood. Can you break down those two images of womanhood for us a little bit and why you think Tolkien kind of saw it that way or approached it from that perspective? So you've already, that's, by the way, I didn't know that about him translating Hail Mary. That's, that's interesting, uh, interesting to know. Um, so you've already started to um, talk about um, Galadriel, who uh, in many ways is uh, a very idealized uh, image of a woman. Um, for, uh, you know, devoutly Catholic Tolkien, um, it's hard to think of a more wonderful woman than, uh, than Mary. And, you know, it's not original with me to see the relationship of Galadriel to Mary. Um, it's been written about by other people. Um, there's language like that Lothlorien is without stain, and that's a phrase that's, that's used for Mary. 
Um, Gladriel is, is very beautiful. She's very wise. Um, uh, actually, clearly a more um, important, powerful figure than her husband, Caliborn. There's a funny part in um, the chapter in Lothlorien where um, uh, either she or the narrator describes Celeborn as the wisest. This is right after she has shown herself to be wiser uh, than he is. And that's left over from earlier versions, but Koking made Galadriel more and more important as he wrote about her. And that continued after the Lord of the Rings. He continued to write about her and to think about her and to make her, in a sense, in some ways, um, even more idealized. Uh, by the end of his writing, well, he was struggling with the idea of, was she forbidden um, to sail back to Valinor because she took part in the rebellion of the Naldor or not? And he's, he moves it in the direction of her being innocent all along. So uh, once again, she's without sin. On the other hand, we have Shelob, who is, um, uh, you know, oh, I'm sorry. And one more thing about um, Gladriel before we move on is she also um, is a good mother figure. Um, she's um, like the, uh, the mother figure of the, in the sense uh, of the elves in Lothlorien. She is actually um, Aragorn's grandmother-in-law. Um, she gives him, or she will be when he marries uh, Arwen. Um, uh, she uh, gives him um, good advice about going to the paths of the dead eventually and gives him an heirloom when they're leaving Lothlorien and so on. Shelob is very much the opposite. Um, uh, Tolkien liked the name. Um, he wrote to his son about it. She means she. Um, and Lob is an archaic name for spider. I think Bilbo calls the spiders in Mirkwood. Uh, that's one of the epithets he shouts at them when he's trying to make them mad. Um, and she is um, the mother of, it seems like the spiders in Mirkwood, um, but she devours her mates. And I think she would, would devour the children too if she could catch them. So she's the opposite of Galadriel. And they're tied together by the file of Galadriel that, that she gives to Frodo um, because, and it's, it's another way they're related as opposites. Galadriel is characterized by light. Shelob is characterized by darkness. Um, she, she likes to eat the light and um, just um, spawn darkness afterwards. And it's the file of Galadriel that really enables um, with, of course, Sam's enormous bravery enables them to escape from, uh, from Shelob. So you've got the, the air here that is trying to pull Ahab back to the motherly world through love. But then you have also this masculine, murderous thinking sea. And what is that about? Well, these maternal figures, these matriarchs, can do nothing without the approval of God, of Yahweh, of the Father. And what is the job of, of, of the God, right? Whether it's God, Yahweh, or whether it's even Jesus, what do they tend to do? They tend to impose order on the chaos. And where do we see chaos most? We see chaos at the point of creation, right? You, you, 
you can read about gods even in the Greek tradition and even in the Native American tradition, I believe, where, where these gods create humanity or earth out of the void, out of chaos. In the New Testament, of course, you have Jesus on the boat with the apostles, and what does he do? He quiets the water. He quiets the chaos of nature that is happening all around them. The murderous thinkings here, and of course, it's no coincidence that Melville mentions Leviathans in the sea here, because Mel, one, of, one of the books that Melville read the most in the Old Testament was the book of Job. And in the book of Job, it's all about God telling Job, look, can you do everything that I do? No, you cannot understand the ways of me. Canst thou hook the Leviathan? So, underneath the sea, you've got the world of the Father, who is managing all of this chaos. But on the surface, it might be perfectly calm, right? We get to see the surface layer of these things, but underneath, we've got God's providence, God's working, his thinking, trying to manage all the chaos here, trying to deal with the monsters of the deep. Now, what is Ahab doing, of course, in his pursuit here? He is trying to impose his own order on the chaos, on the monsters, right? He says, uh, you know, for 40 years battling the monsters of the deep. He considers himself even, and some people have made an interesting, an interesting argument here about Ahab as a kind of heroic figure doing battle with the, the serpents and doing battle with the, the monsters of the deep. I, I think it's a fun thing to think about, but I'm not sure you get so far with that thought that he's heroic. I'm not so sure. Maybe, maybe someone can make it a better argument for it. Nonetheless, the duality here that I see is the stepmother world trying to bring him back in and the masculine world of the father trying to tell him, stay on the surface. Just stay right there. Don't come down here. Down here is nothing but destruction, right? Two, two things uh, connected with that, I think, that you made me think of. One is I was very fortunate that um, maybe about 10, 15 years ago, I, I went to the Philadelphia Museum of Art and I got to see a wonderful exhibit of the works of Salvador Dali. And most people who think of Dali as an artist, they think of persistence of memory, right? Stuff like that. But his very early works were very small, very realistic paintings, and they're absolutely stunning. And he could have, if he would have stayed just with those realistic paintings, he still would have been known as a tremendous force in art. But he didn't. Like what you said with Joyce, I mean, if you read the the uh, the short stories, they're be absolutely beautiful. He could have stayed in that, right there in that, in that genre, and he still would have been known as one of the greatest writers. But he pushed himself beyond that. Something that I wanted to ask you about, you say that things kind of shifted when he was working on Shakespeare and bringing Shakespeare into it. Do you know what was it about Shakespeare that sort of made him pause? I have ideas. <laughs> yeah, please let us know. Um, 
It's just because I've, I've been sort of in a phase now where I, I see that episode as being a, a, a fairly key one in terms of Joyce's evolving conception of Ulysses. Because um, originally the, it looks like that that episode would have been placed earlier in the book, but then it becomes sort of the ninth chapter. It's, just, it's in, in the episode, Stephen is in the National Library of Ireland. He holds forth in this disquisition on, on Shakespeare. And the attitude towards Shakespeare is one of the big biographical differences between Stephen Dedalus and the Joyce that existed in 1904. That in 1904, Joyce, which is incredibly arrogant, if he did not have the skill as a writer to pull it off, she would have been insufferable. And he is kind of insufferable anyway. Um, and indeed, in this anecdote, we'll, we'll, we'll relate to what I'm saying. There's a story of in, the, in the 20s in Paris, Joyce is just being very bossy, like, you do this, you do that. And then Nora says, ah, Jesus, Jim, if God himself came down, you'd tell him what to do. So one of the key differences was that in 1904, Joyce was loudly dismissing the importance and quality of Shakespeare as a writer. Saying that Ibsen is the true inheritor of the Dantean literary tradition. Shakespeare, he's just a hack. They're dramatic blunders. And then over the years, his opinion changed and quite dramatically. In 1912 in Trieste, he gave a series of lectures on Shakespeare, including one in Hamlet, to sort of the, the Triestine literary public. It's one of the big lacunae in the Joyce canon. They, the texts don't survive. So no real idea what he was talking about there. We have traces of sort of a notebook where he, he's, he's definitely doing his homework on Shakespeare. And it's a reasonable speculation, but only a speculation, that Stephen's theory in, 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 in the Skillet chapter in Ulysses has at least some affinities with what, what, what Joyce said there, but that, that is a, a speculation. So his opinion changed considerably, and I think the key line to get it is Nora's, and this also will relate to the, 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 um, uh, the, the, her, her, her snide comeback line to him, that she told her friend, Frank Budgeon, ah, there's only one man he's got to get the better of now, and that's that Shakespeare. And that's, in a sense, what Joyce is doing in Scylla, is that he's, it's one-upping Shakespeare, but by becoming Shakespeare. It's not quite the anxiety of influence. In fact, it's an interesting way around the anxiety of influence. He's rewriting, revising Shakespeare, precisely because of Shakespeare's grand canonical status. There's indeed the line in Scylla, after God, Shakespeare has created the most. And then the way sort of, I, I, the quick way I understand that, and this is explaining one complicated thing by going to an even more complicated thing, Blake's poem, Milton, where Blake has the line, there stood Milton forming bright orison. Milton creates the God who has created Milton. And that's a sort of the act of poetic creation, much as Blake is creating the Milton who inspired Blake, because the Milton in Blake's poem is not readily recognizable to other readers of Milton. But it's this idea of going through the big precursor and rewriting them to make them yourself. And this is what, it's a very complicated game Joyce is doing in Skill of Dudes because you have Stephen's theory about Shakespeare and Joyce's theory about Shakespeare. And the two overset, um, overlap, intersect, but they're not quite the same. 
And it's, um, there, are, there are some gaps in Stephen's theory that Joyce, I think, sort of subtly points out to. But in brief, Stephen characterizes Shakespeare as an artist who, and this is quoting Stephen from a portrait, transmutes the daily bread of ever-lived experience into ever-radiant art. So the artist translates their lived experiences into art, which doesn't mean that they're a documentarian autobiographer. They take just elements of their real life and fictionalize them. So a portrait isn't Joyce. Joyce's biography of as a young man, it's a fictionalized version of that. There are things from his real life that are there, but some more directly than others, some bizarrely inflected, like the opening scene in a portrait. Totally true. There's a line in uh, a letter Joyce, Joyce's father wrote to him in 1931, where he goes, my dear Jim, I wish you a happy birthday. Do you remember the good old days when we lived in Brighton Square and you were baby Taku and I used to take you out and read you stories about the moo cow that would take boys across? She said, that is an absolutely accurate memory. Um, and of course, it also shows that Joyce's father never read anything his son wrote, not even the damn first page. But so Joyce takes that but fictionalizes it within the, the sort of the medium of free and direct discourse. And so there are in the, in the ensuing discussion about Shakespeare, these two characters have uh, um, talk about Shakespeare. Well, you know, of all the great writers, Shakespeare is the most enigmatic. All we know is he lived, died, and suffered. Not even that much. That, that is, we just know the facts about his life are practically non-existent. And then the rhetorics, but his plays are so personal. And I think the point is, those both propositions are not mutually exclusive. Shakespeare's plays can be deeply personal, yet tell us nothing about sort of the raw data of his life, and that that's the kind of artist he was, and yeah, that's also the kind of artist <laughs> Stephen is aspiring to be. Um, and so you have this kind of theory of artistic patrimony that's sort of working in that working in that way. And a detail that's not stated in the text. But I think is is a is a at the very least a happy coincidence. Hamnet Shakespeare, the the son, his birthday was the same as Joyce's, set February second, and so that I think also sort of is implied there. Now, one of the ways in which the arguments differ, or is Joyce's from Stevens, is in the first proposition of the argument. Stephen it says this is. Shakespeare's motivations to write Hamlet, that his son has died, his wife is unfaithful, he wants to be able to play the role of the ghost and then confess his wife's infidelity to his son in this kind of spectral role reversal. Hamlet, your mother is unfaithful, so on. So according to Stephen, Shakespeare is the, a cuckold and a father of a dead son, which Coincidentally, that's Bloom. And so Bloom is very much implicated within the theory. And obviously, Stephen isn't doing this. That's not part of Stephen's thinking, but it's part of Joyce's. And that's the that's the thread to sort of untangle the mixing my sewing metaphors here, but that's how you can distinguish the, the Joyce's theory from, from Stevens in that. That reminds me of Aristotle in Poetics talking about poetry is a more serious thing. Than history, it seems that Joyce would kind of agree with that idea that the taking of the history and fictionalizing it in some ways creates a, a more truer event 
let's say even. You mentioned, I mean, we talked about Shakespeare. Let's let's bring in another powerhouse here that you mentioned as well, which is Dante. Now you can correct me on, on this one, but I do believe in the in Elman's biography, he footnotes a conversation that might be apocryphal where someone asks Joyce about the great epics. And Joyce essentially says, I'll paraphrase here, that the only epic, you know, really truly worthy is Dante's. And then when someone asked him about, well, what about the Odyssey? You know, this kind of background for Ulysses, he kind of sweeps it away as not being that great or that on the same level as Dante. Can you maybe talk a little bit about what was it in Dante that Joyce so loved and and why might he have kind of swept away a little bit the Odyssey, something that was a substructure for Ulysses? Yeah, again, it's, I don't remember the, the, the quote offhand, but um, it, it sounds right. And you always have to take these kind of Joyce and Grant proclamations on um, as, if not wrong, that he might be trying to make sort of a, a point in a, in, a certain, um, in a certain way. The way I'd answer that is, because that was going to open up another huge kettle of fish, Joyce was Catholic. And I mean, he turned against the religion and it's a, this relationship with Catholicism is complicated. But I think the key line to get at it is Mulligan's line to Stephen. You have the cursed Jesuit strain in you, only it's injected the wrong way. That he rejected the church in some ways, but not in certain fundamental ways. Indeed, in Stephen's argument um, in Skill and Charybdis, he talks about sort of the Mariolatris aspect of Irish Roman Catholicism as being just a kind of populist dodge, a screen away from the essential teachings of the church. So he's very much imbued with a strong sense of Catholic dogma, just in a highly idiosyncratic way. And that's not unlike Dante, who's creating or in his mind, a very orthodox, like the orthodox version of it, and hubristic, and that like, God revealed this to me, not, not to that Cavalcanti clown over there. Gross, gross paraphrase of Dante, but it's, it's sort of that kind of forceful, self-involved reinscription of Catholicism that I think would have, and, and, and sort of the way in which Dante does it, as in the guise of an epic and that he translates a classical form into this highly Catholic big C um, quest, um, as it were. And it's incredibly, it's, it's, it's an incredibly sophisticated poetic work. Um, it's incredibly beautiful. It's deeply philosophical. I mean, there are a lot of factors to admire. It's also, and there's a line that, I forget if this is Philippe Solers or Maurice Blanchot has this about Dante, that it's more foreign to us now than Virgil or Homer, that it's maybe more historically recent, but conceptually it's more distant. I think that's also a part of what would sort of, um, the Joyce would find so impressive. I mean, it's also, I mean, Beckett too was also a very strong, close reader of Dante, but takes very different things from Dante. 
Marley's visit essentially answers the question proposed by Cain. Am I my brother's keeper, or is my fellow man's life my business? Marley says yes. And here is where we enter into our question, what is the true cause of Marley's suffering? The common reason that we see in TV and film versions of A Christmas Carol is that Marley is in agony because of his chains. And don't get me wrong, this is an important part of his woes. The empirical evidence tends to speak for itself in performances of the story. The chains are large, heavy, they drag upon the floor, make horrific sounds, and they certainly symbolize Marley being forever trapped. But when we turn to the text itself, we find that Marley has quite a different view of his chains than we might think. You are fettered, said Scrooge, trembling. Tell me why. I wear the chain I forged in life, replied the ghost. I made it link by link and yard by yard. I girded it on of my own free will, and of my own free will I wore it. Marley does not have a problem with the chains. He owns them. He made them. He fully accepts the fact that they represent the fetters that he built while he was alive. His remark about making it of his own free will connects us back to another famous figure in literature that we know well on this podcast, Milton Satan. We know that Dickens received a copy of John Milton's Paradise Lost as part of a collected poetical works gift from John Macrone in 1836. And then when an inventory of Dickens' library was done in 1844 there were at least two copies of Paradise Lost as part of the total collection. So Dickens was most definitely aware of the character by the time he wrote A Christmas Carol. So it is at least plausible that Milton's fallen angel crept into Dickens' mind as he wrote his Christmas story. One of the primary lies that Milton Satan continually tells is that he did not have the free will to do anything other than attempt to overthrow God. But in the famous monologue that I read and broke down on this podcast, at his most honest point in the entire text, Milton Satan asks himself, Hadst thou the same free will and power to stand? To which he responds, Thou hadst. Satan will continually try and pass the responsibility for his actions off to others, which becomes one of the many sources of his personal great suffering. However, Marley is completely resigned to wearing these chains. What makes Marley suffer so is not the chains, but the loss of agency, the loss of being able to be his brother's keeper. Let me show you what I mean by putting together two parts of the text. Just prior to the section I read before about Marley's chains, Scrooge asks his former partner, But why do spirits walk the earth? And why do they come to me? And this is what Marley has to say. It is required of every man, the ghost returned, that the spirit within him should walk abroad among his fellow men and travel far and wide. And if that spirit goes not forth in life, it is condemned to do so after death. It is doomed to wander through the world. Oh, woe is me! and witness what it cannot share, 
but might have shared on earth and turned to happiness. I love this idea that Dickens puts into the text. There is a need for our spirit when we're alive to wander beyond our small local existences of home, work, school, hobbies, etc. Now, this wandering of our spirit can happen in many ways. Good deeds, letters, emails, even texts, charity. The point is to let your eyes, ears, and heart be open to places where you can do some good. Let your spirit wander. But, and here is the Dickensian rub, you must do so while you can. Let's fast forward to the end of Marley's visit now. This is the scene where Marley beckons Scrooge to come to the window in the room. And Scrooge, for a brief moment, bears witness to an entire world of suffering that takes place in the space between life and death. One that we who walk the earth alive never even take notice. Scrooge followed to the window. Desperate in his curiosity, he looked out. The air was filled with phantoms, wandering hither and thither in restless haste, and moaning as they went. Every one of them wore chains like Marley's ghost. Some few, they might be guilty governments, were linked together. None were free. Many had been personally known to Scrooge in their lives. He had been quite familiar with one old ghost in a white waistcoat with a monstrous iron safe attached to its ankle, who cried piteously at being unable to assist a wretched woman with an infant, whom it saw below upon a doorstep. The misery with them all was, clearly, that they sought to interfere for good in human matters and had lost the power forever. This notion of looking at charity and kindness as a privilege of mankind is fascinating to me. And I have to admit that it is a reading that I can't always keep at the forefront of my mind, because doing good often seems like a burden to us. We feel good when we do it, and when we produce happiness out of the action. But we often do not see the ability to act as an honor and privilege, one that we lose upon death. This is not something that many of the adaptations put forward, and yet I think it's an important distinction because it helps us better understand why Scrooge is so happy to do good at the very end of the story, why he indicates how happy he is that he is allowed to give his time and resources to others and produce a moment of happiness in the lives of people who are struggling around him. It's something that I try to keep in the forefront of my mind all year, but I admit that it can easily morph from privilege to responsibility to burden. A reading of this text usually reminds me that I am quite blessed to be alive, blessed to have certain skills that I can share with family and friends, and resources that I can use to help those around me, because there will be a time when I can't. Well, I hope you enjoyed this montage of clips on literature and conversation from season two of the Neutral Ground podcast. If you have not done so yet, click the subscribe slash follow button and join our growing community of people who value civil discourse and meaningful conversations. Until next time, try to keep one foot firmly planted on neutral ground and have a great day. Mm-hmm.